Welcome to the audio channel of Dr. Sadat. Preach Christ, teach the Bible, make disciples. So the title of my sermon this morning is called Satan in Disguise. And I'd like everyone to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And our theme verse is chapter 11, verses 14. We're going to start by reading 14 and 15. So the NASB says, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 to 15. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Let us pray. And now we humble ourselves before God Almighty, whose grace has gifted us and whose love has saved us. Patiently now we wait for thee. Your words are a lamp to our path and a light to our feet. May the Holy Spirit strengthen me to deliver a word of power so that many to Jesus will come and meet. Amen. Amen. Church, I'm going to make a statement which I'm almost 100% sure is true. That in your life as a Christian, in your whole Christian experience, you will never meet the devil face to face. I can also say with nearly 100% certainty that you will face the devil or one of his servants in disguise. So you could spend your entire life looking for the devil and never find him. See, Satan, the devil, Lucifer, doesn't like to operate overtly, obviously. So when we think about, you know, devil-worshipping cults, people who are weird wearing these funny outfits, getting in a basement with, you know, goat's blood, that stuff is real. But that's overt, that's obvious, that's in plain sight, that's exposed. And as I mentioned in my last sermon, a hidden threat is always far more dangerous than a revealed one. So when Satan operates, he prefers to do so in disguise. It's covertly. So 99.999% of Satan the prince of evil, the forces of darkness operating in our world is covertly. It wears a mask. It's in disguise. So when we talk about Satan operating in disguise, we're talking about the covert strategies of darkness that operate in our world. And here's why a sermon on Satan's strategies are, is crucial. Because when we talk about the strategies of darkness, when we talk about evil in our world, it is always multi-dimensional. There's natural causes of evil, and there's supernatural causes of evil. So yes, when we talk about idolatry, enmities, strife, hatred, malice, murder, racism, xenophobia, 
Of course, there are going to be natural explanations. No one's denying reality. Of course, there are going to be biological explanations. Of course, there are going to be social explanations. Of course, of course there are going to be economic explanations. But behind all that working in disguise is a supernatural source of evil that want to destroy your family, that want to destroy your church, that wants to separate you from your loved ones. So when we look at gang violence in Chicago, when we look at Christians being murdered across the world and raped and sodomized, when we look at pastors sleeping with female congregants, when we look at pastors sleeping with male congregants, when we look at brothers hating their brother, when we look at mothers fighting against their daughters, when we look at families tearing themselves apart, of course there's going to be individual responsibility. Of course there will be sin. Of course there are a million natural reasons why that's happening. But behind all of that, there is Satan operating in the skies that wants to destroy you. He wants to kill you. And until we realize that supernatural source of evil lurking in the background, that we haven't got the full story. And this is why now we as Christians are smarter. If you ask a Republican why there's problems, they'll say it's because of the left. If you ask an immigrant, they'll say it's because of the president. If you ask Iran, they'll say it's the United States government. If you ask the Democrat, they'll say because Republicans the were smart. We know they're, they're, they're all probably right to an extent, but behind all that, they're Satanists. And if we know who we are battling against and become familiar with the devil's dark strategies, the less likely we are to fall into his trap. For as Ephesians 4.27 says, do not give the devil an opportunity. So back to our themes. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So let's establish some context. So we're going to zoom out. This verse appears in 2 Corinthians, which means it's in the book of 2 Corinthians. It was written by the Apostle Paul to whom? The church at Corinth. He was writing them a letter to give them advice, to instruct them, because the Corinthians were known to behave very badly. And 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as a whole, Paul is trying to warn the people. He's telling them, look, there are a bunch of wolves in sheep's clothing in your congregation, and they're trying to destroy you. They're distracting you, and they're enticing you and they're giving you false doctrine, and they're telling you things that you want to hear which are in fact untrue, and they're leading you astray from the true gospel, the true singular message, which is Jesus Christ. And Paul then says, it's no wonder, because the devil and his servants operate in disguise. So now we zoomed out. Now let's zoom back in. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. 
In this sermon, I'm going to highlight three different things. That when Satan disguises himself, there are three components to his strategy. There's a design, there's a deception, and there's a distraction. Design, deception, distraction. Here's the very tongue-twister way of saying that. The devil's doings are designed to deceive and distract you so that you disobey God. One more time. The devil's doings are designed to deceive and distract you so that you disobey God. So here's the first design, the devil's design. So our theme verse says, Satan disguises himself. So who is Satan? He's the ultimate bad guy. He's always bad news. The Greek root of his name means deceiver. The Hebrew root of his name means adversary. John 8.44 says, The devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 1 Peter 5 8 says, The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. John 10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Nothing good about it. The Bible uses adjectives like cunning, crafty, subtle, and full of guile when they describe how Satan operates. And when we talk about Satan operating in disguise, his design always operates to distort your perceptions about yourself, about your world, and about God. His design is always intended to distort perceptions about yourself, about the world around you, and about God. The devil always wants to destroy you. His intent is always malice. It is always evil. It doesn't matter how it's dressed up. He wants you to die. And he wants to destroy you. But he's not going to come out and say that because he's smarter than that. He has a design to it. So he's not going to say, brother so-and-so, I want to destroy you. He's going to disguise that intent. He's going to dress it up, and he's going to make you do something as if in some way, shape, or form, it's a benefit to you. His design always wants you to turn away from God so you forget about him and you ignore Jesus. But he's not going to tell you, I want you to disobey. He's going to package and frame his design so that you see obeying God is in some way limiting and disobeying God as liberating. And when he executes that design, sin no longer appears to be sin. It appears to be something good. Let's make this clear. This is classically executed, the devil's design in Genesis 3. What happened in Genesis 3? You have Adam and Eve. Where were they? They were in paradise. 
Let's not forget this. When you go on vacation and you have the beach in front of you, take a picture of your phone and you say, this is my new screensaver because it looks like paradise. That's where they were. They were in paradise, which means they needed nothing. They were literally in a heaven on earth. There was nothing more they needed. But what does the devil do in the form of a serpent in Genesis 3? He puts on the disguise of a serpent. So immediately their defenses were lowered. And he doesn't tell Eve, I want to destroy you. He puts on a disguise and says, you know what? If you eat of the fruit of the tree, you could be like God. And there's a benefit in that for you. Doesn't that sound like something attractive? Doesn't that sound like something that can advance your career? He didn't, he didn't come up to Eve and say, I want you to disobey God. But he packaged it, designed it so that he said, you know what? If you obey God, you actually won't know about good and evil. But if you eat of the fruit of the tree, now you're going to liberate yourself. Eve, why don't you unshackle yourself from the oppressive burden of this, of this God in the sky and chart a course for your own self-determination. And sadly, Adam and Eve both followed the serpent's advice, and the result was the fall of humankind, and we were kicked out of paradise, and sin entered into the sea. When it comes to the devil's design, this is a key take-home point to remember. The Bible tells us that the devil, before he was cast down from heaven, he told himself, I want to ascend. He said, I want to be like the Most High. So here's the devil's design. He always looks up first and says, I want to ascend. And what then happens is God kicks him down. So he wants to go up first, and then he's kicked down back into hell. Jesus is the exact reverse. He emptied himself. He was already God. And he took the form of a human being and he stooped down low. He goes down first. And what happens? He resurrects. And now he's exalted to the right hand of the Father. The devil goes up, gets cast down. Jesus goes down first, is spit on and rejected as God. And now he's King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And look at that plan. The devil always wants to go up first and ends up a loser. Jesus always comes down first and empties himself and ends up a winner. And look at how this also works. The devil, using that design, he always fuels your pride. He says, you're a winner. You're the best. Me, 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 I, I, I. And you get puffed up and you tell yourself, I want to ascend. And of course, you may win now in the present, but you lose eternity. The Holy Spirit does the opposite. The Holy Spirit takes your pride away, and you say, I am but a finite creation, and you glorify God, and you get down low, and you carry the cross your entire life, and then when you die, then you get the crown. You go down, then you go up. And look at how applicable this is to everyday life. 
I bet you can think of one person or one group that says, I have a right to blank. I am entitled to blank. I deserve blank. Now, does that sound more like I want to ascend or I want to get down low? We have an economic system built on in order for you to win, you have to ascend. In order for your corporation to be the most successful, you have to ascend and others have to go down low. Where success is defined by a monetary unit. So you could make millions upon trillions of dollars running a sex trade operation, but you're winning from an economic standpoint because now you have ascended. And it's so easy to fall into a design which actually celebrates and promotes you ascending because it's a cultural norm and therefore is culturally accepted. And let's make sure we're clear. No one is saying that you should never have a degree of self-interest because the Bible says itself, you should love your neighbor as yourself. So of course you have to take a keen interest in maintaining yourself, that you're a person made in God's image who deserves kindness and respect and love. You have to love yourself because if you don't, that's a doorway open for abuse. But it's a question of worship. Who do you ultimately put upon the most high? Is it the person in the mirror or is it God? And are you asking yourself, I will ascend or I will stoop down low and carry my cross just like Christ? Now you may be asking yourself, well, how do I know what's real? In a world that's so obsessed with the self, when it comes to my walk with God and everything that I do, how do I know what is Satan in disguise and what is legitimately of God? And the answer is simple. Satan always wants you to look at yourself first. And look at how this persuades how we think about religion. You can say it's all about my faith. Actually, it's not. The reason why your faith is valid is because there's someone to have faith in who is Jesus Christ. Starts with God. It's not my church. Listen, your senior pastor myself will tell you this isn't any human being church. This was built by the Holy Spirit. The church is the bride of Christ and everything happens according to the preordained will of the Father. It's not my church. And God, by the way, is not concerned if you're a member of a church. He's only concerned if you're a member of the church. And it's never about my sin. Because once again, that's focused on the self. When you, as a finite creation, compare your sin to the blood sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, it is finished, it is over, and the guilt is gone. So the devil's design always makes you focus on yourself and not God. Now the key take-home point about the devil's design is simple. The design that we as believers follow is the design that conquers all other designs, which is the horizontal and vertical beam of the cross. Amen. The devil is a loser, and he's in hell right now, yeah. losing. Yeah. 
Jesus is a winner and he's in heaven right now winning. Don't get tricked and don't get fooled. You don't want to end up where losers are. You want to end up where winners are. So you bear your cross now and go down so in eternity you will ascend. Second component. So first we have design. Now we have deception. So when Satan operates in disguise, he employs deception. So back to our theme verse. Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He's using a disguise to deceive you, to trick you, to put you off balance. And the primary means that Satan uses of deception is always a lie. Because as John 8.44 told us, the devil is a liar. It's in his nature to lie. He doesn't even need to try and lie. It just comes out of him. It's just what he does. And the lie inserts ideas that, again, distort your perceptions. And the lie, if you're someone far away from God, can be a blatant contradiction of the truth. It can be a blatant lie. He can say things like, Jesus never loved you. God doesn't think about you. But if you're a little bit closer to God, he can't give you an outright lie. He'll give you part truth mixed in with part lie in order to keep you off balance. Some of the lies he'll tell us is, you're not good enough. Or, as long as you don't do that, then you'll be okay. He'll say, did God really say that? Is that really one of his commandments? Does that really apply to you in 2017? I mean, come on, it's 21st century. He'll lie and say, you're in this all alone. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. And he'll tell you probably one of the most dangerous lies today, which is the lie that keeps on giving. He'll say, this is not what you need. It's not good enough. He'll tell a husband, your wife is not what you need. She's not good enough. He'll tell you a church member, your pastor is not what you need. He's not good enough. He'll say, your house isn't what you need. It's not good enough. And this is the lie that keeps on giving, because guess what happens? When you go from the Honda to the Mercedes, now you use the same lie. Not what you need, not good enough. Now you need a better. Now you're living in your means and have food on the table and clothing on your back. It'll say, not what you need, not good enough. Now you need two or three mortgages to live in a place well beyond your reach. He'll put you in a church where you have a Bible-preaching Christ-loving pastor, a horde of elders, and a community of believers that want to nurture you. But because there are no flashing lights or electronic billboards, he'll say, this is not what you need. It's not good enough. And probably the most paralyzing lie he can tell you is it's not possible. Because if he convinces you it's not possible, what does that do? 
it distorts your perception, so now you think nothing can change. Right. So now you can't make the decision to heal. You can't make the decision to follow Christ. You can't make the decision to change your ways. Now let's be clear. The when Satan employs a strategy of deception by lying, the power of the lie is not that it's true. It's making you think that it's true. One more time. The power of Satan's lies is not that it's true. It's making you think that it's true. And for scripture references, see Colossians 1.15, Mark 3, and 1 Corinthians 10.13. So I want you to think about one of the most dangerous lies Satan deceives believers with today. And the lie is that you are on plan B. Think for a moment, the last time someone told you that. That you are plan B. You're on plan B. You messed up so bad that now you're on plan B, plan C, plan X, Y, and Z. Whatever happened in the past, that's unforgivable. You, you were on the A track in your entire life. And now, because of what you did, because of the sin you committed, what happened to you, now you're broken. Now you're damaged. Now there's no turning back, and God forgot about you. You were on an A track, but now you're a loser. It's not possible. Look at yourself. You're plan B. Why well, I have this for you. I want everyone to come in close. You ready for this? This is God's world, which means everything is planned. We serve a God that is sovereign, which means nothing happens that he doesn't know about. Do you think God was in heaven in November of last year when the presidential election happened? And he said, oh, didn't see that one coming. <laughs> nope. Everything happens according to God's sovereign will. And because God is sovereign, there never is a plan B. You were born plan A. Your life is plan A. Everything that happens is plan A. You've been led to believe the lie that somehow because of what you did caught God by surprise and now there's no turning back. But I have news for you. God is more powerful than sin. Sin does not tell God what to do. When Jesus rose from the dead, the revolution began and the revolution ended. And he didn't lay on that cross and say, I now condemn you. He said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And he said, it is finished. Before you had being in this world, you had being in the heart of God. He knew exactly what you were capable of and everything that would happen in your life. Plan A was Jesus coming into this world and living and dying for you 
He knew exactly what you were going to do, and he was not ashamed of you. Because there never was a plan B. Everything is God's plan A, including you. And if it means getting up in the morning and looking yourself in the mirror and saying, I am God's plan A, tell yourself that. Because you are formed in the image and likeness of God. God doesn't make mistakes because there never was a plan. With Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation, and sin cannot overpower a sovereign God. He can even use the mistakes you've made to teach you something. Let's take a step back. Prophet Elijah, 1 Kings 17. This was a guy who was living by the brook Cherith, being fed by birds bringing him bread. Let's keep this real. If I saw Elijah back then, I could very easily say, with me not knowing it, you know what, Elijah? It looks like you're on plan X, Y, Z. Look at yourself. You have no ministry. You didn't go to seminary. You have no congregation. You have no fellowship. I mean, you're, you're being fed by birds by a river. This sounds like, you know, mental illness kind of stuff. You can't be on plan A. You must have did something wrong. That's 1 Kings 17. What happens a couple chapters later? He's used by God as a vessel to call down fire from heaven when an entire nation falls to their feet and says, yes, Lord, you are my God. And on top of that, he didn't even die. He went up to heaven in a chariot fire. Sounds like plan A to me. Let's look at David. You could have said, hey, King David, you're king of Israel. You're just a great king. You have money and power. Then he commits adultery with Bathsheba, right? You would say, David, it's over. It's a scandal. Front page on, you know, it's on all the news websites, if that's how it was back then. You would say, David, you've fallen from grace. It's over. You were on plan A. You were chosen. All that covenantal stuff, yes, it applies. But now it's done. You messed up. It's finished. You're over. Just give up. Now you're on plan D. Just pick up your bags and go. But God can use your mistakes to teach you something. If David did not commit adultery with Bathsheba, he never would have written Psalm 51, which is what? The blueprint on how any sincere person repents and confesses of their sin. To me, God used his mistake to now provide dividends for every believer on the face of the planet and draw people closer to God. That sounds like... We have to stop living as Christians in spiritual poverty. Because we are beggars outside of the bank of Jesus, saying, woe is me, I am on plan B. We are living as if we have no money in the bank, but what we fail to realize is that Jesus already paid off of our debt, and he transferred the riches of grace into our account. We're living like we're spiritually poor, but in reality, we are spiritually rich. 
We are billionaires when it comes to our spiritual bank account because of what Jesus has already done. This is the difference between religion and Jesus. Religion says that you serve an impersonal God somewhere up there, and there's an infinite gap that separates you. We we do serve an infinite God, but when you serve just someone like that who is impersonal, and you're just a servant, you forfeit all your rights, because they are God, and you are someone lowly. We serve a God who is also our Father. We say, Abba, Father. And because we are adopted sons and daughters, we have a right. We haven't forfeited anything. And we have an inheritance because of Jesus. The parable, yes. I never liked the name of the parable of the prodigal son. Because in my opinion, this is the point. The point of that story is the loving father. The son was living spiritually poor. He was mugging around in the mud. But he failed to realize all he needed to do is say, Daddy, here I am. And then the father didn't condemn him. He threw a party because his son had returned. Sounds like plan A to me. The lie you're living, if the lie that you are plan B or you're living on plan B was true, then there would never be Jesus entering into this world. And as the words behind me say, he is risen. And he went through all of that. He endured the torture and pain on the cross for your sake. He was never ashamed for you, and you were always his plan. Amen. Now, finally, the third part of Satan's strategy when he operates in disguise is distraction. So Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So the distraction is that you have Satan disguising himself as something holy, as something pure as something of the light, and that distracts you. Now, an angel of light means the disguise that Satan wears appears to be something good, innocent, or pure. So when we think about bad guys in our world, like Adolf Hitler, Osama bin Laden, that's not Satan in disguise, because those guys are clearly bad guys. Satan in disguise appears as a saint waiting to seduce you, or a paragon of virtue, something holy and pure and righteous and very, very religious. And the danger of Satan's distraction is that he can often take sin, which is, an, which is abominable and detestable, and he could repackage it in something bright and shiny so that it doesn't appear to be sin. And when he repackages it, sin can often take its brightest forms. Now let's make that very, very plain and applicable to life in the 21st century. Do, there, there are two major Christian holidays a year. There's Christmas and there's Easter. Do you think it's just by surprise that on both of those holidays, there are two things you can do in, a, in the secular world that have nothing to do with Jesus. 
See, the simple example is that Christmas now, or as the world can often say, Xmas, just cross out the Christ. Right. You, can, you can actually be an atheist and participate now in Christmas. You can take time off from work, you can buy the gifts, you can rack up credit card debt because you're distracted. Your energy is focused on something else which isn't God, so you don't have to bother about church and the Bible and Jesus. But that's readily obvious. Let's get to the other one, Easter. Easter's coming up in a couple of weeks. Now everyone knows the common thing kids like to do. They put on the nice dresses, the boys wear the nice suits, and they go on an Easter egg hunt bunny rabbits and eggs, and it's cute, right? I mean, what's the big deal? Just bunny rabbit and eggs. But we can't get distracted. Because you could do all of that and never appreciate the significance of what Easter the resurrection is. So let's take a step into history. Where did the bunny rabbit and egg thing come from? In the 6th century, there was a pope by the name of Gregory the Great. He was in Rome, and he was sending monks out all across Europe. And he sent French monks to an area of Germany, which was then called Saxony. And the monks said, you know what? In this area, there are a bunch of pagans and they have their pagan temples, and they do pagan stuff. And they're going to get mad if we destroy all of their religious shrines down. So Gregory the Pope says, OK, don't take the shrines down, but instead remove the pagan idols out of the shrines and put Christian ones instead. So the philosophy was modified accommodation. So you may be surprised to know that the Saxons had a fertility goddess by the name of Oster, O-S-T-E-R, which was symbolized by a rabbit. And the fertility goddess gave birth in the spring which was a sign of new life, which was symbolized by an egg. Wait a minute. That sounds kind of familiar. Oster, Easter, bunny rabbits and eggs. So you would be asking yourself, wait a minute. This sounds like this whole Easter thing has been a big distraction. But then you may say, you know what, preacher, after all, even if that's true, what's the big deal? What's the big deal if kids go out and they have fun and it's cute and nice and we have a good time? And I say, the big deal is that, that that's paganism in disguise. And we can't afford to get distracted. No, I'm not a theological dictator. I'm not saying you should forever ban the word Easter from your vocabulary and instead say Resurrection Sunday. But what I am imploring you to do 
is not to get distracted. And if Satan in disguise can invade upon, can intrude upon one of our most holy holidays, we have to be sincere in our prayers and ask God to reveal to us those times in the past when perhaps we've been distracted by an angel of light. So we can not only discern what happened, what will happen in the future. So we have our design, we have our deception, and we have our distraction. So in conclusion, I'm going to speak about the devil's defeat. Joyce Myers has a book, the title of which I've always loved. It's called Battlefield of the Mind. Because it captures the essence of the legitimate day-to-day -day Christian experience. We're at war with the forces of darkness, and it's a struggle in a battle. So truly, the day-to-day -day walk of the Christian is a war, but it's a fixed war because God has already won. Amen. But the battles that we encounter day by day are ours to fight. And let not your heart be deceived. This has been a sermon about Satan. But the one we really ought to be fearful of isn't the devil. It's God himself. Because yes, Satan is powerful. And he's much more powerful than we are. But he is far less powerful than God. Satan is actually vulnerable. Satan can fire a fiery arrow at you. And you can block it with your shield of faith. If God fires an hour at you, you're done. You can resist the devil. God is irresistible. You can flee from the presence of the devil. There is nowhere to run and nowhere to hide when it comes to an omnipresent God. 1 John 4, 4 says that greater is he that is in us that is in the world of the devil. So what I hope I've made clear is that the one truly to be fearful of is God Almighty. He is the mighty fortress. He's the one who originally built the supernatural wall that no one can get through. And once you're in the good graces of God, the devil can't touch you. Now you may be asking yourself, well, if I'm battling day to day, how do I fight? What strategies do I use? And that begins to touch on spiritual warfare, which is a different sermon for a different day. But I'll leave you with this. The devil is a liar and loves to lie. The thing that will equip us to battle day by day is the truth of God's word. Amen. And the secret to the whole thing comes in 2 Timothy 2, verses 25 to 26. This is what Paul writes. God may grant them knowledge of the truth and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. The truth of God arms us so that we're aware both of the devil's design, his deception, his distraction. Tim Keller says it beautifully. He says, in the battlefield of our mind, the entire land is claimed and owned by God. 
But what the devil will try to do, he'll try to invade that battlefield and make a claim to different points of lands. But when we arm ourselves in the truth of God, we begin laying landmines. So if the devil tries to step anywhere, he gets blown up. And if he tries to move anywhere, he explodes. And if you equip yourself and arm yourself with God's truth day by day, you're going to put landmines everywhere. So even if you get tripped up, even if you get deceived, even if you were distracted, the landmines are set. You set it and forget it in the devil's eye. So where would you start? Maybe you're out there somewhere listening on your phone. You haven't checked in with God for some time. Where do you start? How do you equip yourself with the truth of God's word? I'll give you three suggestions. The book of Proverbs is wisdom literature. There are 31 chapters in the book of Proverbs. There are 31 days in most months. You can read one chapter per day. Each chapter is one or two pages. You'll get through it in five minutes. You can start there on yourself the truth of God. You can start by reading one psalm a day. The psalms are poetry. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible for a reason. It's where men of faith express their love and prayers and supplications and adoration to God. And if you're unsure how to approach God or questionable about how to pray, the Psalms give you a blueprint on exactly what to say, and it can animate your own prayers. You can also begin in the book of John, for the crux of the entire Christian faith is Jesus. And John testifies both to the person of Jesus Christ and his deity, his majesty, as the king of kings who walked among us. And when you equip yourself with the truth of God, you'll learn that God has a design which was for you to have eternal life. That there's no deceit in God because he is the very definition of truth. And his truth tells us there is only one way to salvation, which is Jesus. And God will never distract you because he has no need to, because he's everywhere and sees everything. He doesn't waste his time in leading you astray. And I'll leave the church with this point, that Satan may operate in disguise and use many strategies of deceit, but Jesus Christ is always in plain sight and everybody knows about him. Profess faith in him and him alone and you will find safety and security in the bosom of your risen and crucified Lord and Savior. God bless you. Listening to this podcast from Dr. Sadafo. For more valuable information and resources, please visit chesadafo.com.